be reading from Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 58. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Surely you have known someone whose funeral was worth dying for, whose obituary, as it was shared, was worth dying for. And by that I mean they live their lives reflecting such love and devotion and trust in the good Lord that their obituary only began to tell something about the sweetness of their life and their service to God. As I look on your faces this morning, I can think of so many loved ones in your life that I've been present at the funeral for, And the obituary was really worth dying for. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the Spirit, they cease from their labors, their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. I think a people like Jim Powell, who served this congregation for a long time as a deacon... An obituary worth dying for. A sweet man who loved God and his family and this congregation, and no one doubted that. I think of Judy Reams, Eldon's wife, Wynn's mom, a sweet, wonderful lady always ready to help people with just enough mischief to really keep life exciting for Eldon and for all who knew her. I think of so many. I think of Carolyn Harkness, Jan Larry's mom. I think of Wilbur's wife, Carolyn. And what a sweet, wonderful, gracious Christian lady she was. And how, if you were here only a few years ago, 
you would see Wilbur and Carolyn walking in hand in hand, and then you would see Wilbur and Carolyn walking in, and he was pushing her wheelchair. And I would think, how wonderful an obituary that's worth dying for. A number of years back, I visited a very dear friend who was the best man in my wedding and a tremendous mentor to me when I was a much younger preacher. And he was at death's door. And as I walked into his bedroom, passage after passage after passage of Scripture rolled off of his lips. There were a lot of things he could no longer remember. But the Word of God was still deep in his heart and present on his lips. How fitting. Seems to me that that's an obituary worth dying for. You'll never find a better obituary outside of that of Jesus than Acts chapter 7. Today we're doing best love passages of Scripture. Acts 7 this morning, Revelation 2 verse 10 tonight. And the more you think about it, the more you'll understand why I put the two passages together. Acts 7 and Stephen this morning and Revelation 2.10 tonight. Be faithful unto death and the Lord says, I will give you the crown of life. Think about this with me. It is better to suffer persecution for Jesus and what is right now and to no heavenly reward later than to have all the treasures of this world now and to not know heavenly reward later. Amen? Why is it that so many people live their lives in search of worldly treasures with God made secondary at best. Christ is our life. Colossians 3 and verse 4. Our all in all. Colossians 3 and verse 11. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It's better to suffer for Jesus and what is right now and to know eternal reward later than to have all the treasures of this world now but to be lost later. Jesus said, as the world hated me, it will hate you. John 15 verses 18 through 20. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. The Word of God says in this world you'll have tribulation. John 16 and verse 33. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. But not only that, I want you to think about this with me. It is better to die a horrible death 
on earth. It is better to die a horrible death on earth than to hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you at the judgment. It is better to die a horrible death on earth than to hear Jesus say, depart from me at the judgment. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Funerals are serious business. But there are some obituaries that are most definitely worth dying for. Acts 7 is one of those. I'd like for us to look at Stephen this morning. Our lesson will break down into three very simple truths. Consider the man, Stephen. And we will be looking at the opening verses of Acts chapter 6 to see a lot about the man. Consider the man, Stephen. Secondly, consider the message. Here's where we'll focus on Acts 7 in particular. Acts chapter 7, his message. And then consider his martyrdom or his death for a cause. To be a martyr is to die for a cause. Stephen is the first recorded Christian martyr in the book of Acts. And he dies for a cause. The cause of Christ. Now let's look at each of those three truths. Consider the man. Consider the man. And by looking at about the first ten verses of Acts chapter 6, we can see much about Stephen. First of all, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 6 verse 3 and verse 10. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was one of seven men appointed to wait on tables and to do special work in the church. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And by that, I guess we could say the welcome mat for the Holy Spirit was put out in Stephen's heart. God was welcome in his heart and in his soul. Is God and God's purpose and will welcome in your very heart and soul? Or do other things shove God aside? He was full of the Holy Spirit, the passage says. And so he is full of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, because Stephen wanted to properly respond to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6.17. There's obituaries that are worth dying for. And by that I mean they're so true to somebody's life and what they're all about. It tells us about for whom and in what way they lived. Notice again, Stephen is described as full of wisdom, the same two passages. Acts 6 verse 3, Acts 6 verse 10. He was full of wisdom. He had the good sense of God, we might say. He had the good sense of looking at things with 
the perspective of God. He had become skilled in knowing how to do that. Remember, that's the very thing for which Solomon desired in the Old Testament. He wanted to be wise and discerning and to have the ability to to distinguish what's right and wrong and what's good and what's best. Stephen had that type of ability. Now notice verse 5 of Acts 6. He was full of faith. Do you see it? Stephen was a man full of faith. We ought to ask ourselves as we consider Stephen, the man, are we full of the Holy Spirit? Is God welcome in our heart and soul? Are we full of wisdom, the wisdom that's from above, James 3, 13 through 18? Or are we captivated by earthly wisdom and earthly ways? Are we full of faith and trust in God? Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. Hebrews eleven six. are we full of faith? He that would come to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. Are we full of faith? When we look at Stephen, we see he was full of grace. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. Are you gracious or do you sometimes find yourself being very graceless to others. Stephen was full of grace. You talk about favor that's undeserved. Stephen was full of grace. The same expression, John 1.14, is used of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Look at chapter 6 and verse 8 again. Stephen's life was full of power. But Stephen would be the first to tell you that the power in his life wasn't due to self. But the power in his life was due to the bigness and greatness of Jesus Christ. Here is a man who had miraculous gifts in the first century, the early church. Something that does not exist in this day and time. But I want you to know that God's people ought to be full of power and the power is not of us but of the Lord that we love and serve. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves but of God. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 Consider the man, and here is a life lesson I want you to grasp and get a hold of. If you and I would have an obituary that's really worth dying for, it will be because we live with the great desire for godliness. We live with a great desire for godliness. Stephen was full of these great qualities. 
ought we not to be too? Exercise, discipline yourself to godliness. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Secondly, as we look at Stephen this morning and the great God that he served even more, he wanted to serve God. He wanted to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus with godliness that was full and rich and real. So should we. But consider the message. In order to appreciate Stephen's message, you have to look at the closing verses of Acts chapter 6. Look at Acts chapter 6 verses 13 through 15. As well as Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. Here is what is happening. Here is the charge leveled against Stephen as he preaches Jesus. This man speaks against this house and against the law. The accusation, the charge leveled against him is blasphemy. That he is blaspheming the temple. He is speaking against the temple of God where God resides And he is speaking against the law itself. Notice that in Acts 6, verses 13 through 15. Those charges, those accusations are remarkably like the trumped up charges against Jesus. Remember? Where false witnesses swore against him, this man claims that he's able to destroy the temple and build it up again in three days. The likenesses between Jesus and Stephen will be most noticeable by the time we read all of Acts 7. Notice Acts 7 verse 1. He is brought before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And there he stands before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the high priest of the Jews for about 18 years. And if I can say it nicely, in many ways he was a scoundrel. Imagine the high priest of the people of God being a scoundrel and being that way and in office for 18 years. It is Caiaphas who mistreats Jesus. And he does no favors for Stephen either. Consider the message. Acts 7 is a lengthy chapter consisting of 60 verses in our English translations. But really Stephen's sermon breaks down into four parts. But what I want you to do is remember this. What is the crime that Stephen is supposed to have committed? What is it again? He blasphemes what? The temple and he blasphemes what else? The law. Keeping that as the thread that holds everything together Consider this magnificent sermon, and it's really a lesson on Israel's history. Here's how the sermon breaks down in four parts. First part is Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. 
Abram and the patriarchs. That is not a uh, rock and roll group from the 60s. Acts 7 verses 2 through 8 deals with Abram and the patriarchs. Secondly, Acts 7 verse 9 through 19 deal with Joseph and Egyptian bondage. Joseph and Egyptian bondage, 9 through 19. The biggest part of this sermon, third point of Stephen's lesson. Verses 20 to about verse 40 to 45. Really verse 40 we'll say. Moses and the wilderness. Moses and the wilderness. Forty-one and following to about verse 50 will deal with David, Solomon, and the, monar- and the monarchy. David, Solomon, and the monarchy. Now, a word or two about each of these four points. It's a history lesson. But why is he answering the Jewish Supreme Court and Caiaphas, the high priest, with this type of sermon? Let's look and see why. Some people want to look at this sermon and try to, uh, to, to ask, did, did Stephen mess up by preaching it? I don't see how anybody could consider the character of Stephen as we just did from Acts chapter 6 and question what he's seeking to do in Acts chapter 7. There's some people that even have alleged through the years that Stephen may have made a mistake or two in how he handled things. I would suggest that Stephen is a man of great godly character and he was very concerned about the way he handled God's Word. I don't believe he made any mistakes. But the message proclaimed was what God wanted these men to hear. And remember, the whole charge is about blaspheming the temple and blaspheming the law. Now, I want you to understand this. Here's what happened with many Jews. The temple became their talisman. The temple became the rabbit's foot. The temple became uh, the lucky charm. Because in the temple, God's presence was to dwell. Psalm 27 and verse 4. To dwell in your temple, to, 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 in your presence, to behold your beauty. That's what the psalmist wanted to do. And the average Jew's mind, that is exactly where God would dwell. And that is true. But their God became way too small because of their thinking. 
the temple basically became a bottle in which their genie was stashed. And they could pull him out. That's not unusual nowadays. A lot of people keep God in a nice tidy box and they only open the box whenever they have a need. The God who dwelt in a temple cannot be confined merely to a building. You stop and think about it, my friend, and it'll put a quiver in your liver. God not only is up in heaven reigning, God is sitting beside you at this very moment if you belong to Him. Notice this as the sermon unfolds. In Acts chapter 7 verses 2 through 8, when God appears to Abram, Abram was in Mesopotamia. How big and awesome is God? He's big enough and awesome enough to appear to Abram in a place that was overrun with idolatry. Consider the next section, 9 through 19, Joseph and Egyptian bondage or slavery. God is not confined merely to a temple. God is ever-present and He appears and is with Joseph when Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brethren and is in a foreign land. God is with him and God causes him to find favor and to prosper. Where is God? He's in Egypt with a slave far from home and far removed from Israel's God, one might think. Then you read that big section, verses 20 through about verse 45, Moses and the wilderness. And in this section, God appears to Moses in the desert, the wilderness of Midia. The burning bush. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then, notice the last verses, 45 to 50. The monarchy, especially under David and Solomon... Solomon would be the one who would build the temple, but it would be David who got most of the materials together for Solomon to do that. David, though not allowed to build the temple, was allowed to gather materials for its being built. But notice in these verses, catch this. Verse 48 through 50. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, What Stephen does is to magnificently respond to the charges that he has spoken against the temple where God dwells. You know, before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle, right? The tent. Its portability shows something about how God is on the move and how God's people are on the move. Isn't that true? And when you think about the tabernacle, the two human names most often associated with the tabernacle, rightly so, Moses and Aaron. Notice that nothing is said derogatorily by Stephen about Moses or Aaron or the tabernacle. The two names most often associated with the temple, human names anyway, are David and Solomon. Does Stephen say anything unkind or malicious about David or Solomon? All he is saying is this. Jeremiah 7 and verse 4 Do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Many Jews had got so wrapped up in the rabbit's foot theology that the truth had become blurred. Yes, God was to dwell in the temple but God could not be contained or confined by that space. And while Jews would have given lip service to that, their lives would have been far different had they really believed it. What was the second charge made against Stephen? He blasphemed the law. Now notice verses 51 through 54. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised ones. You heathen-hearted and death-hearing-the-truth-of-God people. You know why? Because God gave a promise to Abraham... And those people, the people of Abraham, twisted and prostituted the promise. God gave them Joseph as a deliverer. And people forgot about Joseph. And God's blessing and care. God raised up Moses who would say that one like unto me will come. A redeemer and a ruler. 
Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. And people rejected Moses. Remember when they got out of Egyptian captivity? Their heart, many of the people's hearts went back to Egypt and they thought about the good old days of slavery. And what did the people of Israel do while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law? Notice verse 41 of Acts 7. The emphasis upon hands. Verse 41. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Solomon built a temple with his hands, but God cannot be contained in anything made with human hands because he's the maker of all. You're blaspheming or speaking against the law, Stephen. And Stephen, catch this. When you go to the end of Acts 16, it's important to bring this out. When you go to the end of Acts 6, rather... And look at verses 13 through 15. And they observe Stephen. What does Stephen look like? It says, the face is like that of, what? An angel. The face is like that of an angel. What do you imagine an angel's face looks like? You think that an angel's face is radiant? Do you think that an angel's face is calm and at peace? Here is Stephen supposedly being tried by the Jewish Supreme Court and before the great high priest of Judaism, and his face beams. I want to ask you this. Does your face glow with the love and knowledge of Jesus? Could you prove it in a court of law? Would it be observed? Would the peace that you have in Christ see you through great tribulation and persecution? Would it? Will it? Now we're ready to think a little more about blaspheming the law. Far from blaspheming the law, what Stephen is doing is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That He is the one to whom the law points. And that's amazing. Christ is the end of the law to all that believe. Romans 10 and verse 4. And so as great as the temple is, as great as the law is, the one that really is being pointed to is Jesus. And here's what Stephen says. He says, you resist the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? One of the things that it has to mean is this, that we resist the Holy Spirit's teaching that's been revealed in Scripture about the Son of God. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. They put to death the prophets That's what Stephen goes on to say. And here's the clincher. 
You murdered the very one that the prophets foresaw. You killed Jesus. Now, Brother Powers, he's talking to a group of men who not that long before had sentenced Jesus to death. And he doesn't hold anything back. Far from me blaspheming the temple and the law, you are the ones who have spoken against God dwelling among men, Jesus, and you are the ones who have violated the very law you claim to hold by holding up your tradition and murdering Jesus. That guy had some fortitude, Steve. He had some gumption, I imagine your mama would have said. Stephen did more in preaching and dying for Jesus in a relatively short period of time than most of us will do if we live to be as old as Methuselah. It is a great passage, and it ought to be a best-loved passage of Scripture. And I want you to stop and think about this. There is little difference between Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, and Peter's sermon in Acts 2. But there's a world of difference in the results. 3,000 were brought to Christ in Acts 2 initially. Stephen paid with his life in Acts 7. Notice Stephen the martyr finally. Just a few words here. Consider the martyr. We've considered the message and we've considered the man. Consider the martyr. You will never get more Jesus-focused in your life than in the way you approach your death. We ought to pray for the presence of mind to be focused on our Lord and Savior as we take our last breath. Notice in this case, four observations. Observation number one, Jesus seen. Look at 55 through 60. Jesus is seen. I see the Son of Man standing at the right of the Father. He sees heaven and He sees Jesus. I suspect Stephen... Though given a heavenly vision, here it seems, had seen Jesus all of his Christian life. It's really no surprise he sees him here. Jesus invoked, second observation. Jesus invoked. Lord Jesus! You're the one who has made salvation of my soul possible. You are the one to whom I commit my spirit. What words? Notice this third observation. Jesus trusted. Jesus trusted. Think about the last words of Jesus. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Think about the last words of Stephen. Lord, receive my spirit. Jesus, think of this fourth observation. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Do not hold this against them. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus, the one that we are to imitate. Jesus, the one that we're to imitate. It is better to die a hideous death than to hear at the judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. I would rather die, I would rather be pelted to death with rocks than to hear my Savior say, depart from me, I don't know who you are. You're not not mine. How many people will have a good death but a bad eternity? Many of us will be blessed to have a good death with loved ones all around us. I know so many of you have had loved ones who passed and you were able to be there with them. Isn't God wonderful? God often allows us that blessing, but if He only gave us the blessing of being with Him forever, it would be enough. Amen, church? So let's all get our big boy and big girl pants on. Quit our crying and our complaining and our immaturity. And let's be people of great godliness. Stephen was. Let's be people who love and live the message of God in Jesus. Stephen was. And let's be people who understand that there's way worse things in this life than dying. And it's dying lost. Stephen did. Now for quickly the rest of the story. Saul was present at the death of Stephen. He held their coats. They laid them at his feet. And undoubtedly Saul heard the thuds and the bones breaking of rocks hitting Stephen's body. And for a while he hardened his heart and persecuted the church and helped to kill Christians. He himself would acknowledge this and imprison others. But I believe 
that due to the goodness of God and to a horrible event that he witnessed on that occasion, a change would begin to be wrought to come about in Saul's life. And that is why he would come to be known as the Apostle Paul. That is a death worth living for. The death of Jesus. And it's an obit worth living for when somebody truly lives their life in the Lord. If you are not a Christian, do not turn away from Jesus by not expressing your faith in Him. Do not turn away from Jesus by failing to repent, to turn from your sins. If you're not in Jesus, don't turn away from Jesus and reject Him by failing to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't do this, please. Because if you fail to repent and be baptized based on your trust in Jesus, one is lost. A God who has provided hope and life through His own dear Son, He needs to be responded to. Now, let us stand and sing.